Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hey, hey, welcome to uh, another edition of the podcast. The guest this time is somebody I've known for a little over a year. He's a fascinating, fascinating dude. A true scholar, like literally a scholar of Buddhism, the old school Buddhism, um, what's known as the Pali Canon. He actually speaks Pali, which is the ancient Indian language that the Buddha spoke and taught in. But if that makes you at all nervous, you shouldn't be because he's an incredibly down-to-earth guy, uh, a big beer-drinking, mellow dude who just is incredibly smart and really interested in Buddhism and really very skeptical about um, some of the claims of his uh, fellow Buddhists, which is really interesting to hear. He's got a new book that is fantastic. It's called Untangling Self. The subtitle is A Buddhist Investigation of Who We Really Are. And he, what he does is he makes the least comprehensible part of Buddhism, which is this idea that we, that the self is an illusion, which a lot of people get really hung up on. But actually, if you explain it correctly, as this guest does, you can really make it a uh, not only comprehensible, but useful in your daily life. So check this guy out. His name is Andrew Olensky or Andy Olensky. I think you're going to like him. Here we go. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So how did a nice, skeptical <laughs> guy like you end up falling into Buddhism? How did that come about? Well, you know, I just followed my interests. I had the privilege of being able to study what I wanted at college. And uh, I started out in philosophy as the kind of queen of the sciences. I wanted to see the big picture, understand in the broadest terms. And I took a course in Chinese philosophy, which was really transformative because it exposed me to Taoism, which is a very different way of thinking and being in the world. And yet I found it quite compelling. And I followed that strand through Eastern religions generally. That's where all the really interesting stuff was going on, was in the Eastern religions department. Um, and in Eastern religions, I kind of gravitated gradually towards the historical Buddha. And I found his uh, the teachings from that era and his voice and his approach uh, really very powerful. It was um, straightforward, conventional language. It was nothing, didn't strike me as particularly mystical or, or uh, esoteric. It was just a lot of common sense about how human beings work how we get into trouble in various ways, and how we can uh, work our way out of it. So that's really what uh, attracted me. I mean, you're much more of an expert in the Buddha than I am by, by far. But what I like about the guy, to the extent that I have any understanding of him, is is he's really much more down-to-earth than you would think, given his popular his reputation in the popular culture. I mean, he exactly. was really, a, a first of all, just a guy. You know, he didn't claim to be a god or anything like that. And and um, uh, he also said, you know, look, I'm going to talk about a few metaphysical things like rebirth and karma and enlightenment, but take it or leave it. Yeah. Just ch test it out in the laboratory of your own experience. Well, that, as you know, and as you can see in the book, is really my whole approach to the topic. You know, for uh, thousands of years, Buddhism has been a religion in various cultures. It's uh, been elaborated in various religious ways. But I'm not really moved by any of that or attracted to any of that. I'm interested in the man historically underlying all of that. And so as a scholar, I specialize in the earliest strata of the tradition, the historical Buddha, the world he lived in, 
the language he spoke and, and taught in or was very similar to that. And I draw all my inspiration from, you know, trying to see what was underneath all the myth-making and legend-building and so forth before it turned into that. Well, one of the confusions I've always had about um, the focus on what the the Buddha actually said is that we don't really know if he actually said it. I mean, he existed 2,600, he lived 2,600 years ago, and then his teachings were passed down orally for, like, 300 years before anybody even wrote them down. Right. So we don't, I mean... No, actually, nobody was there with a video camera. Uh, so we ha- there, there's some faith involved in, in, in this, no? Well, the word I prefer to faith is trust. There's certain things we can trust. Um, I think that, uh, of course, we don't know exactly what was going on then in any culture, you know, let alone this one. But I think that the oral tradition was far more uh, faithful uh, than we are accustomed to thinking. We're used to thinking, well, if you pass something along orally, like in the telephone game, it gets garbled and it comes back in a totally different form. But in ancient India, um, they uh, relied upon oral tradition for all of their important work. All the teachings of religious teachers, uh, philosophers, uh, poets, and literary uh, figures, all of that was passed down orally. They knew how to write. But the infrastructure for writing, the paper and the materials and everything was very underdeveloped, so it was considered a very unreliable way of doing it. So, you know, if you have 100 people in a room all being told the same thing in a very simple and repetitive style, almost like singing it together, and then you check in two weeks later, you know, collectively the group will preserve it very accurately. An individual hearing one thing might garble it, but uh, there is a whole tradition of memorizing important words. And all preliterate societies really show us how capable humans are of memorizing huge amounts of material. We just can't do it today. Okay, so I, I buy that the, the, the oral tradition is more faithful than one might at first give it credit for. But through all of the, the texts that we now have from the Buddha, lo, these many years— a lot of which are really sort of extremely repetitive, which gives a sense of, you know, how things are handed down orally, but through this kind of repetition. Uh, do, does, a, does a sense of who the guy was shine through? Do you have a picture in your mind of what he looked like, how he acted? Um, uh, because often he's referred to as the perfected one, the enlightened one, but, you know, there are stories about him getting into kind of a bad mood when he had a rock in his shoe and... He was upset when his friends died, and sometimes he would get a little annoyed at his followers. Do you have a sense of what he was like? I have some sense of what he's like. There are little passages here and there where sort of his personality comes out. Um, he's certainly a, a master of language, uh, and he there's a lot of punning that goes on in the literature, play on words and so forth. Uh, he has a kind of wry humor that comes out sometimes. Um, but, you know, that repetition, I think, was really embedded in the original teachings. I think he taught in a repetitive style, and that was part of the rhetoric of how they communicated. So, like, to, to, to give a list of seven things, and they'll repeat, you know, sort of core phrases seven times. You know, I think that's—we see it in contemporary speech, like sometimes ministers uh, use rhetorical repetition and, you know, things like that. It's— I think it was embedded in the way the language was originally spoken. He was obsessed with lists. It reminds me of the way, you know, 
on the internet now, everything is all the stories are in listicles. You know, seven things you can do to reduce belly fat. Right. I mean, he was really like, yeah, seven things you can do to get enlightened. Uh, quite literally, uh, seven things you can do. Well, I pr- prefer to think of him as uh, well organized. <laughs> I think he he organized the teaching very well, it, particularly to make it something that could be more easily remembered and passed on. So. You 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 happen upon this, or not happen upon it? You really uh, discover it and hone in on it in college, and then you just you dove really deeply into it and studied in, uh, I believe, in Sri Lanka, and yes, and yes. and in London, and and um, and where did things go from there? Well, much of my graduate school work was done in, in England, Lancaster University at the time. I first went over there as an exchange student in my junior year of college, and then I stayed on to do a master's degree in Buddhism, Hinduism, and Sanskrit. That's when I started with the languages. And then, uh, you know, I spent uh, about a year traveling and studying in India and Sri Lanka, and then I came back to this country and spent several years at Harvard studying the languages all while working on a Ph.D. for Lancaster University. So I spent about seven years uh, on the thesis itself, just fully immersed in the primary text of, of the Pali language. The Pali language was it's kind of like a it's, a, it's a, it's related to Sanskrit. It's very similar to Sanskrit, yes. Sanskrit, it's a little older than Sanskrit. It's uh, probably, it's more of a vernacular spoken uh, version Sanskrit is like a literary version of the language, you know, proper uh, English and so forth, and the Pali is more uh, street language. And as such, it's closer to what the Buddha actually spoke. The, the Pali that we have in the text is, is you know, some sort of hybrid of, of, of different uh, dialects, but they're all very, very similar can to you one s- Can you speak Pali? Yeah, I can recite it. It's not a conversational language. It's like speaking Latin. It's, yes. I mean, you don't. Know, Go out and have a beer with someone and shoot the breeze in in Bali. Could you if you had to? <laughs> no, I don't think so. You really have to go back to India and live in a world where they spoke that language in order to get that kind of knowledge. But you know, I I, I read it all the time and I read it out loud uh, quite often now in some of the work that I'm doing. And uh, you know, I can uh, interpret it uh, fairly lucidly what I see on the page. So I, I know the language, but it's not a living language, so I don't know it in the conversational way. Although a lot of your work really brings the language alive. Um, so at, where al- at what point along the path for you did you start me- actually meditating? Was it an academic pursuit at, at first that turned into a meditative pursuit? Well, it was really right from the beginning. I mean, the very first class I took in uh, college, I was in Boulder, Colorado, uh, on that involved Buddhism. I read my first book on Buddhism, and I got to the chapter on meditation, and it described what meditation was. And so I just assumed, that well, that's part of what I had to do. So I went up into the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and I sat down, and I meditated. And, uh, you know, I didn't have a teacher. I didn't have, do any particular tradition. I was really just following what the text said about how to meditate. And I immediately found it incredibly compelling uh, that it's a, it's a different way of using the mind. And uh, I, I soon came to realize that almost everything the Buddha was teaching uh, was all about how to explore your experience directly. And that's what meditation is. You know, it's, it's not putting you into an altered state of consciousness, although there are some forms that can do that. It's more just paying very close attention to what's actually happening in the mind and body when you look at it directly. Not when you think about it conceptually, but when you look at it directly. 
To what end, in your view? Well, insofar as I've used it as a tool for Buddhist studies, uh, one of the ends that it's brought for me is really the ability to uh, relate to what the Buddha is teaching about how the mind and body works by seeing it in action. It's almost like the lab component of a science course. You know, here's the theory. Now go into the lab and verify if that's the case. So for me, meditation has been a tool to really understand what the Buddha is pointing to in all those texts uh, as much as anything else. So, so has your life been um, completely seamless and, and, and utterly and incessantly joy-filled as a, con- as a consequence of uh, meditation? That might be overstating the case a little bit, but uh, yeah, I've been quite fortunate. I've not encountered a lot of misfortune, a lot of sorrow. Uh, there are many things that uh, you know come up, and one learns to roll with it. I'd say after so many years of meditation and study and understanding of this tradition, I've I've come to a certain equanimity about most of what I encounter. But you got teenagers at home, if I recall. I do. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so does that ever get uh, difficult? Do I ever get annoyed at my family yeah. members? Of course I do. <laughs> um, but uh, not that strongly, not that often, uh, not that intensively. They're good kids. That helps. Yeah. Uh, you co- <laughs> take, take mine. You know you've met mine. I, I, I challenge you to take him for a weekend. Um, but, you know, even in the face of dramatic world events like we've seen recently, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's all very... From a meditator's point of view, it all becomes very interesting. It's not like I really like this or I really don't like this or I want that or I don't want that. It's more like look closely at what's arising and find what's interesting about it. You say in your book it is time for us to evolve or die trying. So you definitely have some strong views about the utility of the Buddha's teaching in in the face of everything we are facing uh, as a species. But, but let me just start at the beginning here. The book is called sure. Untangling Self. Yes. The self, or the lack thereof, or the illusion of, uh, uh, um, is really, for me at least, and I think for many people, the hardest thing to understand about Buddhism. It just, I, it's completely confusing for many people. So Explain, most people haven't even thought about the idea that we have a self or what the self is or anything like that. So that it, so the fact that it's an illusion is just counterintuition on top of uh, um, just a totally new concept to begin with. So it's doubly confusing. So start from the beginning. How, do we, how are we to understand this? Well, first I'll acknowledge that it is a, a very challenging idea, the Buddhist notion of non-self. And it was in, as challenging in ancient India as it is today. Many people during his lifetime came up to him and said, you know, what do you mean by this? And they didn't understand it. Uh, And many of us don't either. I think uh, here's a simple way of coming at it. Uh, What we're used to thinking is that the self is the starting point of everything. There is a me. There is a person, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, transcendentally created or not. There's, There's some essence of me. And then we build out, well, what do I possess? What is my body like? What kind of feelings do I have? What ideas have I learned? Well, but I think it's worse than that. I think we don't even think about the fact that we do assume (laughs) there is a me, right? I mean, I don't think any any of us, I think we operate as if there is some little Dan behind our eyes. Exactly. But we don't 
we're not even aware that we're operating with that assumption. Right. It is so fundamental and such a ubiquitous starting point that we're not aware of it. it. We just take it for granted. Of course I'm a self. That's the starting point. Now let's talk about everything else. What the Buddhists are simply doing is saying that notion that we have of the self is actually more like the icing on the cake. When you look closely at how the mind and body works, you know, there's a sort of natural interaction between the environment and the body, the senses of the body and the data that comes in from the environment, that the mind and body automatically and naturally processes the incoming information and uh, figures out how, a feeling tone that goes with it and a perception, a kind of interpretation of what's happening. And there's a whole range of emotional responses that we learn over uh, time and develop through uh, cause and effect. And then all of that is really happening automatically, unconsciously, one might say. And then at the very last minute, at the very end of this process, we kind of like put a cherry on top and say, oh, and all of that, that's mine. That's me. That's myself. So the Buddhists are saying that our notion of self is actually an afterthought uh, to what's all that's happening, whereas we're used to thinking of it as the essential starting point of everything that's happening. All right, so I'm going to try to break that down because I think those who are coming to us uninitiated may struggle with it. So what you were describing there, you were, without using Buddhist lingo, talking about the way the Buddhists break down our experience into kind of the elementary particles of experience. So uh, just right now as I sit here, um, I can feel my pant leg against my leg. And so that's the raw data of the experience. But uh, then a bunch of things happen. Um, I have a perception in the mind, which allows me to confirm, okay, that's what that is. I have what you refer to as a feeling tone, which is Buddhist lingo for, you did, a, you did use a little Buddhist lingo there, Buddhist lingo for, do I like this? Do I not like it? Or do I not care? Is it positive? Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, in other words? Yep. So, and then based on that, I either want more of it, want less of it, or ignore it. And so this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg of how the Buddhists break in, and the Buddhists try to get you to see every, this is the point of, one of the points of meditation, to see your experience in a much finer grain way. Yes. And then what you see after all of that, after seeing, oh yeah, my mind just perceived this reality, decided whether it liked it or it didn't like it, and then I made some decisions based on that. You can see how in every moment of experience, you are adding this extra element of ownership, which leads up to this ongoing sense of having a self. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned the I sensation. I actually said that correctly? Well, you mentioned the sensation of your leg, for example. Yeah. You can say, you know, I can feel my pants against my legs. Right. That's a lot of me. Yeah, that is right. So it's <laughs> starting right there. Or you could simply say, you know, uh, the, a sensation, a physical sensation is arising in the body which is being interpreted as pants and legs and that is being interpreted or experienced as pleasant. And then at the end of all that, you say, you know, oh, and by the way, that's me. Yeah, but you know, but you can, can't you see how like when we talk about this is like it throws you into this position of talking in a very contorted way. A physical sensation is being known by the mind and body. It really does. It's like reading the IRS code. Well, yeah, it's not so much that it's more complicated, but it's certainly unfamiliar. It basically, taking the self out, taking depersonalizing everything, 
uh, our experience doesn't change, just the way we talk about it changes. You know, like a, a sensation is arising or this thought is occurring or this impulse is coming up versus I want this and I'm doing that. I, I want to dive more deeply into how this process works in a second, but we may have gotten ahead of ourselves because I should have asked this question first, which is why? Aren't we doing just fine as, you know, walking around operating as selves? No, we're not doing very well at all, frankly. <laughs> um, here's a simple example that the Buddha gives in one of his stories. You know, if a person is walking through the woods and sees someone else pick up a stick and wander off with it or, or a handful of leaves or something, uh, does that bother you? No, it doesn't bother you. Why? Because that stick's not mine. Those leaves aren't mine. They don't belong to me. But the minute somebody touches something that you regard as belonging to you, as mine, you know, this is my stick and I found it and I carved it or it was given to me by my grandfather or whatever, immediately all of these very primitive emotions of, uh, you know, violent defense of your territory, of uh, violent opposition to anyone who threatens you, uh, immediately comes up. But what's wrong with that? Speaking of sticks, you gave me these really cool little wooden blocks that, that, my, that my son plays with. If my neighbor walked into my apartment and took them, I would not be pleased. And am I, am I, would I be uh, acting irrationally if I was displeased by that? It's not irrational. It's that that displeasure is the source of suffering. First of all, you're going to be agitated. Agitated. You're mad at this guy now, and your blood pressure is going to go up, and your teeth are going to get clenched, and so forth. And you know, not to escalate unnecessarily, but you know, you could do some act of violence against the person. And so many of the troubles that come up in our world uh, have are triggered by this sense of self, because the self is the sort of focal point of our most primitive instincts of I have to survive at all costs. Yeah, but we do exist. I mean, you, Andy, are sitting right here. I, Dan, am sitting on, across from you at the table surrounded by all this audio equipment. We, uh, I, this is where things get confusing for people because we can look in the mirror and see that there's a person there. Oh, yeah. The Buddha doesn't deny there's a person there. Um, it, it, see, he's not saying that you think you're a self, but we know better that you really aren't. <laughs> what he's saying is that the concept, the idea that we have of self, and self is a view in, in the Buddhist view. It, it's, a, it's a concept. It's an idea. It's a name, a label. The, the view that we have of self is uh, very clumsy. It's not very accurate. It's not actually referring to the things that we think it is. It's like many things, like, uh, like just in physics, for example, this tabletop. It feels smooth, it feels hard, and so forth. And at a conventional level of language, it makes sense. You know, put that on the table and so forth. But as we know from science, if you zoom in closely enough at the table, you will find at, a, at another level of scale, it's not very smooth at all. And if you go in farther, deeper to the subatomic level, it's actually, there's no solidity there. It's all just empty relationships between various forces. They're really saying a very similar thing about ourselves. It's conventional to talk about myself and yourself. It's a useful concept legally and in so many ways. It functions in our society to help us. But what the Buddhists are doing in meditation is they're really trying to look much closer. They're bringing a microscope to the mind. And when you zoom in much closer, you see that actually it's not how it appears at the normal level of scale. What's actually happening is 
the construction of multiple smaller relationships that kind of build up to our sense of self. And even uh, some Buddhists would, would often say if you go down close enough in investigation, you will see that the mind is essentially as empty as is matter empty when you look closely enough. So it's a bunch of impersonal forces like perception and uh, feeling tone of, of things feeling pleasurable or not pleasurable or neutral. Impersonal forces that we then personalize as the cherry on top. Exactly. But, okay, so let's go back to my absurd example of my neighbor taking the little blocks that you gave my son. Uh, how would a person who has done a bunch of meditation and has untangled the self or partially untangled the self seen through this illusion uh, seeing that the cherry on top is unnecessary how would that person react to a neighbor coming in and taking their kids toy well it depends on the concept on the context I mean if the neighbor is a friend and they just want to borrow them then the person might feel generosity and say well I'm happy to share them with you you know just make sure to bring them back if it's someone you know with a a weapon that wants to take all your, you know, uh, valuable possessions and find that the most valuable and take off with it, well, maybe there's not much you can do about that. So having the ability to renounce your attachment to those things is is, is helpful. It doesn't, it doesn't provoke violence. It doesn't provoke um, a bad intention. It's not necessarily saying that you should give away anything that, that you value, but, you know, in that particular situation, and, and Buddhism is very particular. You know, they're not really talking about generalities. They're much more interested in specific situations. But if your attachment to those is so strong that you resist an armed intruder, for example, that could be the cause of suffering for yourself and for your family and for others. If you have the non-attachment to be able to you know, watch it get taken away, that might be healthier for 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 many of you. Okay, so I may have picked a dumb analogy, but then can you explain in a more in 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 terms that we can all understand and care about why untangling the self again to go back to the title of your book, seeing that it is a cherry on top that we're adding, um, is useful in our actual lives? Yes. Let's go back to what you quoting me saying that we have to evolve or, or, or die. Right. I mean, this is the bigger uh, context of all this. What the Buddhist tradition is saying, as I understand it, is that we have deeply embedded in us certain uh, very toxic emotional drives. They call it greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed is a fundamental urge to get what you want or need. Uh, hatred is a fundamental urge to uh, kill or avoid or uh, something that uh, threatens you. And uh, delusion is really not understanding what's going on very well and making up various uh, illusions about what's happening. Now, the Buddhists are saying that the those emotional tones or those drives in us are toxic and they cause suffering. They cause harm. Uh, so much of the harm being done in our world is rooted in the greed, hatred, and delusion of individual human beings. I mean, the occasional thing like an earthquake or, you know, a meteor strike, okay, there's nothing, no human involvement there. But all of the, the war and the injustice and the exploitation and, and so forth is all because some people are feeling greedy and hateful and others are the victim of that. And all of the personal distress that people find themselves under, the sort of anxieties and the, and the panics and the fears and the 
uh, addictions and so forth, those all come from the internal breaking out or manifestation of greed and hatred in various formations, the racism, bigotry, and so forth. And so the problem is that the sense of self is really what triggers these things. You know, they're, they're in us as very primitive defense mechanisms. And so when we feel like my self or my, the extension of myself into my property or my relations uh, is threatened, then it brings out this very uh, primitive behavior. What non-self is allowing to do, uh, taking, uh, it, it's not a metaphysical denial of the self. It's recognizing that taking the, the self as a view, it's like a, a strategy for organizing your experience. And if you change that strategy to a non-self strategy, you know, this is not mine, this is not me, this is not myself, then you are not evoking those toxic emotions. And you're able actually to evoke and develop more uh, positive emotions such as uh, you know, non-greed, which is generosity and non-attachment, or non-hatred, which is kindness and compassion and, and caring for someone else. See, I think this really evolutionary, I think it goes back all the way to the dinosaurs, this very operating system that, you know, I need to survive at all costs and never mind everything else, a kind of this primal ferocity. And I think as mammals evolved, then that we, this kind of gentler part of ourselves, more cooperative part of ourselves came out where I'll sometimes sacrifice my own best interests and maybe even my life for the sake of the family, for the tribe, for the group, for the herd, whatever. And that we have these sort of two operating systems, one on top of the other. They're both still there. And uh, one is more evolved than the other. Now, the third piece of this in evolution, you know, what makes humans unique is this prefrontal cortex where we are able to bring heightened awareness to the present moment. And that's what meditation is developing and strengthening. And this gives us the ability to sort of mediate uh, more between these two uh, levels of our primitive response system. Right, reptile brain and, and our, in the, the front of our brain. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. And so the thing is simply that when we habitually take the view that this is me and I am at stake here, then it brings out the worst in us. And when we take the view that, you know, this is just interdependent uh, phenomena arising and interacting with one another, then it's easier to do what is appropriate for one's own well-being and for the well-being of others. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans.
So if if I through meditation and we should talk about how meditation would help with this, but if I through meditation develop the view of non-self, am I going to be, you know, completely lost? Like am I am I, I going to know how to make a dentist appointment or to, you know, put my pants on? No, of, of course you'll be able to do all that. All all that the it will affect and it doesn't come just by meditation, but through insight and wisdom that comes from meditation. But what the non-self perspective will help you do is become less selfish and more selfless. And that'll make you at least a 10% better person. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you're, you're still going to be you in the world doing what you need to do. You're not going to be a moron as a consequence of this. Absolutely. It's just that you will start to see. Now, here's how I understand it. So I'm going to talk about how I understand it. And you can tell me as the expert where I've run um, astray here is that you start to realize that all of this commotion that you're experiencing internally, this voice in your head, the emotions that arise, uh, you don't have to take them personally, and therefore you don't have to be yanked around by them. Yes. That's the key phrase, don't take it personally. When you take something personally, it really hurts. When it's impersonal, it doesn't. But where people get, I love this, but, but where people get confused about this is like, again, you know, if somebody does something that you perceive to be bad, that is actually aimed at you. A mugger points a gun at you and takes your stuff. It's hard not to take that personally. I mean, it is personal on, on many key levels. Well, you notice in that example that the closer it comes to an existential threat, the more potent and even necessary these primal instincts of self-preservation are. So I would say be a good Buddhist all your life, but if your life's at stake by a mugger in the park, be a non-Buddhist for a little while, <laughs> <laughs> at least to survive the moment. Right, so these, these, these cases that I'm bringing up are really just, they're so extreme that they're not really, a better one would be, okay, you're in a, uh, I'll use my own life. I'm, I'm hanging out with my wife, and I haven't gotten enough sleep, and she's annoying me through no fault of her own, but she's, because she's really not annoying, but I'm irritable because I haven't gotten enough sleep, and I'm just kind of an irritable guy at baseline, and I can feel it. Uh, I can feel that I'm starting to get annoyed. At that moment, I can, through the power of meditation, just turn my attention inward and see, okay, is, is this anger mine? You know, like, do I own this anger? Should, should I feel responsible for it? Should I act on it? Do I need to believe that it's true? Can I see what its component parts are? Like, oh, yeah, my chest is buzzing. My ears are turning red. I have this urge to say the thing that will make the next 48 hours of my life terrible. Um <laughs> That I'm just deconstructing this thing that feels like a juggernaut, this anger, and I'm not taking it personally and therefore not acting on it. Right. You see, you're bringing heightened wisdom to the situation. You know, you you have the impulse, I feel angry and I want to say something to you. I, I, I feel all But then things. you catch yourself because you're in the habit of doing some meditation. So you understand, you look, you turn your attention inward and say, okay, what's really going on here? And just the ability to say, well, um, if you want to use I, you can. I'm feeling uh, irritable because I haven't gotten enough sleep. That's a simple relationship of cause and effect. If I had gotten more sleep, I wouldn't be this irritable. And this thing that my wife said, I'm taking it as an irritation because of a certain set of assumptions I'm making, but I need not make those. So you can sort of reconstruct the situation in a different way by not taking it personally. And again, the result is, as you say, to avoid a certain amount of suffering that would come. When we make hurtful remarks, when we speak, you know, from weakness, uh, it often has uh, difficult consequences. Yeah, it's never really gone well for me. 
Uh, and I've tried it a lot. Um, so so I, I just want to keep free associate for a second here because I my whole shtick has been talking about mindfulness. You know, when uh, when I wrote Ten Percent Happier, when I teach, uh, when I teach, I don't teach anything. When I talk, uh, I go, I travel around the country speaking to corporations. I have an app where I uh, work with teachers to talk about mindfulness meditation. I talk about mindfulness, and I talk about it in the following way, which is that mindfulness is the skill generated most commonly through meditation of, of where you learn to see what's happening in your head right now clearly so that you don't get yanked around by it. Pretty simple when explained in, in you know, non-ooey-gooey, mystical, schmistical language. Right. Um, and people get, uh, most of the time, people get, oh, yeah, I could use that because m- the voice in my head is offering up terrible suggestions like, oh, I should eat a million cookies or uh, I should pop off at my boss or I should engage you know let road rage overtake me and chase people down the road etc cetera, etc cetera. everybody knows that you know that we are yanked around by our emotions and that if we can see them clearly then we won't get yanked around by it so that's how i talk about meditation and and, and mindfulness but selflessness i've had trouble integrating that into my message because it seems like such a big counterintuitive brain hurting, mind-numbing, you know, it just makes my head hurt, makes my teeth hurt thinking about what the self, I, what, what are we even talking about here? But if we just bring it down to the practical level, which is, yeah, you, um, you're feeling angry right now, look for the you who is angry. Try to find it. Try to find it. Try to figure out, just close your eyes and, you know, next time you're angry which, or next time you're experiencing a strong desire, so which will come along in the next five minutes of some sort, you'll be, you'll have an urge for an Oreo or to rip your headphones out and, and whatever. Um, look for who's feeling that, and you won't find that person. And that is a way to kind of untangle, to use a, a word from the title of your book, this emotion that might o- otherwise overtake you and make you do something you would you will later regret. Am I saying that correctly? Does that make sense to you? Yes, and I would even step it back and make it a little bit easier. You don't necessarily have to see whether that's the self or the non-self or where is the self. Simply re-languaging it, rephrasing what's happening will, will be helpful. So instead of I'm feeling anger, uh, angry, uh, it's more simply I, I notice that anger is arising. You know, it, you can add in me, but, you know, the fact that once you say that anger is there rather than I'm feeling angry, the anger has gone from the emotional response that's driving everything you do and has become now something in front of you that you're looking at that you're observing and that you're learning from. So one of the ways to understand uh, de-selfing is sort of uh, decentering. Instead of I'm in the middle of all this and whatever I feel, that's what I have to act out, it's that there is a mind-body here in which various things are happening and I have the ability to look at and watch what's happening. And then the non-self habit is more uh, sort of learning some of the principles when you see certain things arising and passing away in regular fashion, you simply understand, oh, there's that pattern again. When I don't get enough sleep, I get irritable, you know, uh, or when someone cuts me off, I feel anger. But with this sort of distancing that happens by looking at it as something to observe rather than something that uh, you identify with and inhabits you, allows you to make different choices. You know, okay, the anger is imp- imp- impelling me to act a certain way, but I don't have to act that way. There are other options in this system by which to act. But the, the reason why I like the idea of looking for the self in those moments is because I've been 
I've cra- I've been I've crashed up against the rocky shoals of the sort of philosophical argument of whether there's a self or not. I've just gotten stuck in that a lot and wondering what whether maybe the Buddha is full of crap or whatever. But if, in fact, if you just set that aside and look for you, it settles the uh, well. It doesn't settle the argument. I mean, that's not the wrong way to put it, but. In a moment of extreme emotion, if you look for who's feeling it and realize that there isn't that this emotion you're feeling isn't as solid as you think it is. Somebody's just accused you of something you haven't done. And look for who is feeling uh, mistreated. That can actually take the wind, the teeth out of this thing that could make you act in a way that you would later regret. So taking it out of the theoretical, putting it in the deeply practical just gives it. Get, makes it so much juicier for me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Now, here's another way of coming at the whole thing, Dan, that might Great. be helpful. So um, if we understand the human being to be a natural part of the natural world, how could there possibly be a self? So in the natural world, for example, when it rains outside or there's a storm, uh, we don't say, you know, who is raining, who, you know, who is making it rain. I mean, in the old days, they used to say the rain God makes it rain. But we know that rain storm is something that comes together when certain conditions. Making it rain has taken on a whole different um, uh, (laughs) meaning in the popular vernacular. But anyway, carry it on. So, uh, you know, uh, when the temperature is a certain way, the pressure, the, you know, the, uh, the moisture content of the air, all those things, when they conditions come together in a certain way, rain occurs. And, of course, it's just one part of a cycle. There's puddles on the ground. That's part of the raining. There's clouds in the sky. That's part of the raining and the invisible evaporation and so forth. So I'm simply saying that the Buddhists are looking at the human being the same way. When certain conditions come together in certain configurations. Yeah, mommy meets daddy. Well, no, that's, again, too too, uh, physical, uh, too uh, external a way of looking at it. Just internally, every single moment, uh, Dan is something that's happening. It's not that he exists, it's that he's occurring. See, the Buddhists use the word self, that the self, it's not that the self doesn't ex- uh, occur, it's that the self doesn't exist. And maybe this is parsing words, but it's an important distinction. To say that something exists means that it's somehow metaphysically real. The Buddhists say nothing is metaphysically real because everything is changing all the time, everything is non-self. But everything is really occurring, it's really happening. And so you as Dan and me as, as Andy, we are events that are recurring, complex events, very idiosyncratic events. But there's no, uh, you know, there's no person inside making it what it is, just like there's no person in a rainstorm or uh, in, in nature. And so, you know, the only way that a human being can be a self in a natural system is by some sort of religious assumption, you know. And that's how it got there in in most traditions. Well, you know, God created the world and God created the self. And so the self is in the world. And, you know, we've got the special dispensation. We are the ones who are selves. Nothing else in the world is the self. So, you know, as we enter more of the scientific age, it's becoming very clear. There's no place in the brain where the self is found. There's no uh, structure in the body that houses the self. The self is not a thing. What we understand in modern terms, social sciences and psychology and and neuroscience and so forth, is simply that what we come to regard as the self 
is a complex set of conditions that have come together. Some of it's physical, your mother and father getting together. Some of it is uh, emotional, what you've learned behaviorally uh, over a, a lifetime of learning and so forth. Uh, some of it is uh, cognitive and conceptual, what ideas or views you create at any given time. But all those things really do occur. They really do happen. So each of us as individuals are really happening. But again, to assume that there's some entity or essence or, or sacred energy behind or underneath or within all of that, that's really what the Buddha is questioning. Well, let me ask you, my, my mother, who is very in my view, very smart and, and definitely influential on me, scientist, uh, very skeptical person. Um, I got her interested in meditation. She's still into it. She she really rebels against the whole non-self thing. But her argument is just because you can't find it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah, well, that's the same argument they make about God, you know. You can't find Interestingly, it. she's pretty strong in arguing there's no God. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think, you know, after years of coming at this concept of non-self, I think the time has come to, to put the burden of proof on the opposition. Uh, it's not for me to describe what I mean by non-self. I would invite anyone else to explain to me what they mean by self. What is this self after all? And when you ask people that question, you get a whole range of different answers. Now, maybe 200 years ago, the answer would have been, you know, it's the sacred soul created by God. And there are many people who would still answer it that way. But people like your mother, I would think, if asked that kind of question, you should try to ask her, what does she mean by the self? Yeah, she would, I think, reject that the burden of proof is on her. Why? I think because she'd say well, the Buddhists are walking around in the guise of some either religion or, or um, uh, ancient set of practices uh, but be def definitely a tradition, let's just say, walking around in this tradition and making these pretty vocal assertions about the illusion of the self, so prove it. Well, let's keep Buddhism out of it for the moment. Simply, uh, you know, what do we mean by the word self in the English language in the contemporary context? And most people have never even thought about the issue. Well, you know, psychologists do, and they've yeah. defined it in all different ways. I mean, Freud brought an understanding to it that included all the unconscious and all these different schools of psychology over the last hundred years have come up with a different definition, a different understanding. So, and if you ask most people, what do you mean by it? They won't be able to answer that. You know, it's some kind of essence. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, it's, is it material? Well, no, it's not material and, and so forth and so on. So you keep drilling down on making sense of that idea to ourselves. And I think that the, uh, the concept will largely self-destruct. Is it possible to do enough meditation? Well, let me step back for a second. Very quickly, how does meditation help you get in touch with non-self? Nuts and bolts. How, what am I doing in meditation? Because most of us think of meditation as uh, feel the breath coming in, feel it going out. Uh, when you get lost, which you will a million times, just start over. And over time, that will really help you um, see that your thoughts are just these passing impulses and you don't need to... You don't need to you know, take them so seriously. So how does that simple practice that leads generally described as something that leads to mindfulness, again, not being yanked around by your emotions, how does that also lead you to seeing through the illusion of the self? Well, at a very simple level, when you are mindful, you're not selfing. See, I consider self to be a verb rather than a noun. It's not a thing that exists, but a thing that occurs, an event that occurs. And, you know, 
when you sit down and do meditation, as you describe, you're simply observing the sensations, let's say, that arise and fall in the body while you're breathing. Now, you have two options on how to do that. You can say, I am watching my breath, or you can simply be aware that breath is occurring. And in moments of true mindfulness, when you're not just attending to the breath, but you're attending to the breath with a disengagement of desire and seeing it with equanimity, you kind of lose that distinction. You're not constantly reminding yourself, I am here doing this. How do you know when you're at true mindfulness as opposed to whatever it is you just described as not true? And how do you do it right? Well, let me explain what I mean by this. Simply is that there's really two parts to the definition of mindfulness in popular culture. One is paying attention on purpose in the present moment. You hear all that. And then the other part of the definition is with an attitude of non-judgment or sort of disengaging from the wanting or not wanting. And I think that uh, that part of mindfulness, which is training ourselves to pay attention rather than being inattentive, that is a, f a form of meditation. But mindfulness doesn't actually kick into the meditation until there is this uh, disengagement of wanting or not wanting things to be a certain way. So I can see the pain in my knee and not get so hung up in my aversion to it. It's just I'm watching the pain change and uh, well, et cetera, that's a et good example. So the pain is arising in the knee, and it can't help but be annoying. You really don't like it. You wish it wasn't there. You wish it would go away. And so you're, you can be uh, meditating with the pain as the object of what you're meditating on, so to speak. You're aware of the pain. But the attitude with which you're aware of it can be very annoyed, very angry, very aversive. I wish that wasn't there or, or longing for some you know, solution to the pain and so forth. You're, you're meditating because you're keeping the mind on the object, but you're not meditating with mindfulness. Mindfulness is... It's almost like pushing in the clutch on a car, you know, so that the, 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 the speed of the engine and the speed of the wheels are no longer locked into one another. So in the same way, there's the awareness of the pain, but when the mindfulness kicks in, the pain becomes no longer a problem, no longer something that you dislike, and it simply becomes a sensation to regard with how interest. Do you do, how do you do that? It becomes interesting. How do you do that? You just put in the clutch. <laughs> <laughs> I think the way you do that is just by noticing your aversion. Well, you, you notice your aversion, but you let go of it. That's yeah. what I'm saying. You notice it, and in the noticing, you're like, oh, yeah, this is aversion, and I don't need to be so wrapped up in it. Right, but you notice there's two phases to that, noticing the pain, then noticing the aversion, and then letting go of the aversion, saying, well, I don't have to Yeah, be. and then over and over and over again because you're going to start feeling aversion again. I mean, unless yeah. you're really, really good. Well, no, eventually you feel all the emotions. The, the point is that Buddhists aren't trying to run away from those emotions or suppress them or pretend they're not happening or, or turn it into some perfect experience. They're simply saying, notice everything that's happening, including the things that are distressing, but notice them with an attitude of curiosity and interest and not an attitude of, of identification. Right, but it's not... Is, uh, just to be clear, it's not some magical pressing of the clutch. Like It actually really just is taking an interest in it rather than getting stuck in your revulsion. So with a pain in the knee, it can be, okay, I'm feeling the pain in the knee. I hate this. I'm starting to worry. Like, Am I actually maybe hurting my knee? Um, did, is this because I was playing Little League when I was eight, nine and I got hit in the knee by a ball? 
et cetera. Your, your mind just goes off like that. Right. And then you notice, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, exper- I'm, I'm experiencing a flood of thoughts in relationship to this pain in the knee. I really don't like the pain in the knee. Well, let's see what that's like. You know, how is the aversion in my, is the aversion showing up in my shoulder because I'm kind of like uh, squirming a little bit and want to get up? Is the aversion showing up in a desire to like actually leave the room to start thinking about other things? You know, and so I'm just bringing a bunch of curiosity to what I'm experiencing. And then you move into what I would consider true mindfulness. Yeah, I think what brings you most of what you described is not mindfulness. And when you come into it, like you say, I think. It's really when you stop taking it personal. Yeah. When that's, you stop yeah. selfing. But the way to get there is, I think, through the application of interest, is through the application of interest and investigation. Yeah. I think there's a lot of ways to get there. That's certainly one of them. What would the other ways be? Because I'm trying to get you away from just the magical pressing of the clutch, uh, because I don't know that people will understand what you mean by that. Well, you know, the Buddhists talk about it as uh, having insight into the way things actually are. You know, when you when you uh, sort of recognize that there is this sensation arising and that you have the option of either getting very identified with it, which will bring the aversion with it, or whether you have the option of sort of stepping back from it. I'm not sure which which metaphor works best, you know, putting in the clutch of stepping back. But for me, for example, if, if the pain is there and I feel aversion to the pain, it's almost a tangible sense of disengagement when uh, one kind of steps back and sees it as, this is not my knee hurting, this is an unpleasant physical sensation. That's all it is. And you, you need not automatically hate the pain and love the pleasure. It's okay to notice pleasure and pain with equanimity. Yeah. And that's simply, equanimity is just evenly balanced. You're not leaning into it, you're not leaning away from it. So the difference between I hate this pain, I wish it would go away, you're pulling back, or simply observing it as a non-personal event that's happening, which allows you to disengage from being caught by it. Can one get so good at this kind of meditative engagement slash disengagement because you're engaging with it in that you're becoming interested in it rather than reflexively running away with it. And that leads to a kind of dispassionate uh, disengagement. It's a kind of interesting paradox. But can one get so good at this that one reaches a state known as enlightenment? Because you you refer to the Buddha throughout the book as having uprooted greed, hatred, and delusion, as if, like, we know that to be true. Uh, So do you think enlightenment is possible and that this dude 2,600 years ago did it? Actually, I do. Yes. Both. Both. Uh, well, first of all, uh, is it possible? This is what he's describing, and this is what he said he did, and so he's describing it from his own experience. This uh, experience of awakening that he had, or enlightenment as it's called, under the tree, uh, that is described as basically the complete uprooting of these primitive toxic instincts of greed, hatred, and delusion. Yeah, well, lots of things are described in books, but I don't necessarily know that Hogwarts is a real place. So, like, why do we think that this guy reached nirvana? Well, you know, there's no proof. There's no evidence. You know, the kind of, I'm not even sure what we count as evidence in this case. But um, uh, I'm, I'm not saying necessarily that I know that this person had exactly this experience and this is the way it's described. It's more like here's a person who describes having an experience to the extent that I find it 
useful or interesting to the extent that it can be verified in various ways in one's own experience, the extent in which it makes sense in a, as a cohesive explanation of how the human psyche works and how it can be healed from its difficulties. You know, that's all plausible to me. And so I would say it's a working hypothesis of mine that there really was such a person that really did have this experience and so forth. Whether and it's that it's accessible true. to us? I think it's accessible to us because it's really talking about how the mind and body works and uh, of sort of readjusting it. I don't think I can point to anybody that is an awakened person in the contemporary world and say that person has attained Buddhahood, he's become enlightened. But I think that there are many people who you can point to who have uh, you know, much less greed, hatred, and delusion than others or much less than they used to have. I've seen many examples of people improving their personality, so to speak, their level of happiness um, going up, their well-being, uh, through the gradual letting go. Many people say, you know, this thing used to annoy me all the time, and now I just look at it with interest. Or I used to, you know, be filled with rage about something, and now I'm really feeling quite benevolent. You know, when you see changes like that happen in people, or when you see people exemplify a really selfless way of holding themselves in the world rather than a, a heavily selfish one, uh, it, this sort of corroborates some of the basic ideas behind this. But what you're describing there is is kind of in line of my whole 10% happier thing, which is you just get incrementally less of a jerk to yourself and others. But But I'm curious about the word enlightenment, which just has connotations of some sort of magical, mystical transformation. Well, I think the Buddha the, sitting under a tree in the middle of the night and, you know, touching the earth and it shakes and blah, well, blah, blah. Yeah, well, I, as I said at the beginning, there's a lot of legendary and mythological material tied up in the story. And, uh, you know, that made it more compelling to thousands of years of people. Right, good PR. Uh, I don't find it, that stuff compelling. I'm far more interested in thinking of the Buddha as a man having a profound psychological transformation. That's what I think happened to him under the tree. I don't actually believe that the earth shook or that, you know, the flowers bloomed out of season and the devas were singing and so forth. But I do believe that this person had a very dramatic realization. People have dramatic realizations of various sorts. That's, you know, that's not supernatural. And that this one basically was uh, so reaching so deeply into his unconscious mind that it basically... Uh, rewired the brain or rerouted uh, the construction of experience around those uh, primitive instincts. So according to this model, and I don't know if it's true or not, but as I understand, awakening to be a, a transforming of the mind such that these primitive toxins no longer operate, according to that view, for the next 45 years of his life when he walked around, he would have not experienced any hatred, any anger, any fear, any uh, ill will, any addiction or, or greed. Now, one still, and so as such, I think he's really demonstrating the next step in human evolution. You know, I think that we all are capable of operating in the world without being hateful and cruel, without being greedy and selfish. And yeah, there's a lot to work out uh, practically how to do that, especially in a world that is so thoroughly organized around greed, hatred, and delusion as the one that we live in. 
I mean, we live in a society that really institutionalizes greed in its economic system and institutionalizes hatred in its military complex and institutionalizes delusion in its advertising and political deception and so forth. So, you know, collectively we have a lot to work out. But one tone of the book is optimistic. I think that we are evolving as a species. I think we are becoming better and better people on the whole despite compelling evidence, you know, to the contrary in some cases, and that we're doing it by uh, becoming gradually less self-oriented. You know, there's a lot of people out there that are really focused on helping others, that really do care about others, that are really putting their energy into serving others. There's a lot of that out there. And I think, uh, you know, the sort of spread of some of the ideals, at least, of, uh, uh, of equal rights and of empowerment of women and uh, underprivileged people and uh, afflicted people, you know, all that. There's a lot of cultivation of generosity and kindness and compassion and so forth, and a lot of wisdom, a lot of evolving understanding. And I think science is in, in step with Buddhism on that regard, you know, desacralizing the world, demystifying the world, understanding the cause and effect that influences how everything comes to be, and then using our understanding of how cause and effect works to intervene skillfully such that we can encourage those things that turn out better and we can learn to gradually let go and weed out those things that uh, cause more and more difficulty. Well said. Where can people learn more about you and access more? of? Obviously, you can get the book, uh, Untangling Self. Uh, Andrew Olensky. Andrew Olensky. Andrew or, print, yes. Okay. And that's A-N-D-R-E-W-O-L-E-N-D-Z-K-I.org. That's and right. on the web, you have another book called Unlimiting Mind, which is also great, but But you also are doing this thing, I just want to let people know before we close, because it's a really great way to access your uh, teaching, where you do these online courses through the Integrated Dharma Institute. That's right. You can get to all this stuff through andrewolensky.org. So it's got its own separate website now. It's got its own website. Okay, integrateddharma.org. So go to either one of these websites, and basically I recommend, because I've done it myself, sign up for one of these courses that, that Andy does, where you basically you get every week an email where he takes a part of the Buddhist text, translates it himself, and explains how you can put this to work in your own life. And it really just breaks apart the Buddhist teachings into the, the most sort of simple, applicable stuff. I like the value of generosity. What the Buddha said about speech. Speech is, you know, we're always saying dumb things to each other and to ourselves. Um, and the Buddha had some really simple guidelines, not rules, not commandments, but guidelines for how you can think about speech in your own life and act in ways and then test it out in the laboratory of your own life in your own mind. And and I've tried it, you know, mostly failed, but it's an interesting, uh, there are interesting things to learn there that I think over time I will get better at. Anyway, Andy's a master at teaching this stuff. You can, you can sign up for his courses there. You can read his books and re-listen to this podcast because he said a lot of things that probably will take you two times to really fully grasp because this stuff is tricky, but really important. Uh, I'm also uh, doing a course now that's about to come out with Tricycle uh, called Going Forth, and it's all about 
uh, reimagining uh, the move in our lives of entering retirement or our, our mature Andrew, years yeah. and trying to take it really as an opportunity for uh, spiritual investigation and understanding uh, as opposed to just a time of diminishing expectations. That's great. It's not advertised yet, but it will be soon. It starts uh, in January, so stay tuned for that as well. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, You're the best. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Dan. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work lauren efron josh cohan sarah amos andrew kalb steve jones and the head of abc news digital dan silver Uh, i'll talk to you next wednesday if you like 10 percent happier and i hope you do uh, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining wondery plus in the wondery app or on apple podcasts prime members can listen ad free on amazon music Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.